Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Let's listen in as our team discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am Jeff Wall. Um, I am the host of this show. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University and internal medicine clinical pharmacist at Methodist Hospital here in Des Moines. So welcome to the program. So today we are going to talk about um, a study that came out in uh, New England Journal of Medicine just a couple of weeks ago, and and it it puts a spotlight on a disease that um, I I see not infrequently. Again, I'm an inpatient pharmacist, so I don't see it probably as much as as, uh, my outpatient colleagues do. Do, but it's uh, uh, something uh, that you're definitely going to see, in that, especially in the primary care realm, and that's polymyalgia rheumatica or PMR. Uh, you know, and, and polymyalgia rheumatica is is kind of up there with gout as as a, a rheumatologic disorder that is primarily treated or, or at least frequently treated by primary care providers. I mean, I think if these if patients don't rapidly respond, they kind of get referred to rheumatology in many cases. But on the whole, I know many of my uh, internists actually deal with with PMR quite you know, quite commonly and feel very comfortable in, in, in treating it. And so uh, the fact that we've got a new medication that, I mean, admittedly, I think more rheumatologists are probably going to take a swing at uh, for its use um, is actually, is actually pretty imp- imp- important. And uh, I don't think it's got the indication yet, but uh, the drug we're talking about is salrinumab. Um, I believe it will probably get submitted for an indication, uh, an FDA indication for PMR. And to my knowledge, that might be actually the second drug ever approved for, for PMR um, other than steroids. So that's kind of interesting as well. So anyone who's, who's seen PMR, uh, uh, it, it's, it's got fairly standard uh, uh, symptoms. You know, it, you've got this uh, proximal muscle pain and weakness uh, of usually the, either the shoulder, shoulder girdle. And that's what I've seen a million times is people have a hard time shrugging their shoulders. It really hurts, or they have a lot of weakness trying to do that. Uh, but it also can affect other muscle groups as well, hip girdles and, and things along those lines. Um, it's an inflammatory condition. So it's often associated with, you know, elevations of inflammatory markers like ESR and CRP. Um, and more, I mean, not that it's not serious in and of itself, but, but more, more, uh, disturbingly is that it's often linked with with another type of inflammatory condition uh, called giant cell arteritis or temple arteritis, um, which actually can, can be site-threatening because it actually involves inflammation of an arteritis of the arteries leading to, to uh, the uh, um, uh, visual cortex. And so, you know, you'll see that that actually can be a pretty big deal and it can actually do an increased risk of stroke and things along those lines. So we're not going to talk anymore about giant cell arteritis just because that's a whole other kettle of fish. It's just worth noting that there's a, there's a big link between the two, uh, um, between both uh, PMR and giant cell arteritis. Uh, um, and, and again, it's something that if you see someone with PMR, you got to really be on the lookout for that as, as we go along here. And that's because about 20% of patients with PMR have concomitant, uh, giant cell arteritis and about 50% of patients with the giant cell arteritis also have concomitant PMR. So just something that you're definitely going to see. So, uh, as far as the incidence of PMR, um, it varies, uh, it seems to be, uh, uh at increased risk, depending on your geographic location. Like uh, many inflammatory diseases, it seems to have a higher risk in Northern European populations. So the incidence per 100,000 people um, is, is about 113. And for example, Norway, Sweden, where it's only one or two in, in Turkey and Iceland. So, um, you know, again, much more common in people of Northern European descent. Age is one of the big, big risk factors. Um, and in fact, age over 50 is actually the number one risk factor for developing PMR. 
though you can see people in young, young, younger ages as well. Uh, the other big risk factor, like so many other inflammatory diseases, of course, is, is female sex. And uh, I think something like 80 or 75% of, of all PMR cases are, are in, in females. So that's something else that, 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 that's pretty common. As far as diagnosis is concerned, you know, patients, again, will often, often present with, with acute onset of bilateral pain and weakness in either the shoulder or pervic, uh, pelvic girdle. Uh, they often have constitutional symptoms such as fever, night sweats, weight loss. Um, so, you know, again, they have these kind of general symptoms associated with systemic inflammation. Um, the physical exam is relatively easy to do because you press down on their shoulders and it really hurts <laughs> and you try to do passive range of motion and it also really hurts or they, they, you find that their, their reflexes are low and weak and they have uh, a muscle strength that's decreased. Uh, standard laboratory findings, you usually don't have to do a huge workup on these patients. Again, if you notice an increased CRP and ESR, usually in the 30 to 40 range of, of, of ESR um, is, is actually going to help you make the diagnosis. Uh, but again, you don't often need to do a, a million dollar workup from a lab perspective. Uh, I know that uh, they're starting to use more point of care ultrasound um, in helping to make this diagnosis. Um, and, we'll, and we'll actually, you know, do ultrasound of the muscles and actually find inflammation, synovitis, or, or, or bursitis in some of these areas as well. The symptoms are often long lasting. And in fact, the, the guidelines say that you can't make the diagnosis of PMR unless the symptoms last for, for, for longer than two weeks. And then the other thing is both diagnostic and therapeutic that um, if you give them a dose of steroids, they pretty much rise up like Lazarus. And, and, and anybody who's ever uh, treated uh, PMR before, uh, it, I, I don't think there's too many uh, disease states that the clinician can treat that isn't so satisfying for the clinician because uh, these patients are in a lot of pain. They, they've got a lot of disability associated with what's going on and a couple of doses of steroids and they are like right as rain. And uh, they think you're the greatest, <laughs> the greatest person in the universe because you kind of magically gave them some steroids and all of a sudden they're back to normal. So I've seen that many times over the years where, where it's like, wow, I mean, you know, what, what a change after only a couple of doses of, of, of steroids. And so again, I, I, I don't, I've, I suspect, and I've actually had some of some of my attending some of this over the years that it's just, it's enormously satisfying to give somebody two doses of prednisone and they're like, wow, you're the greatest doctor who ever lived. Hey, thanks, man. You know, I appreciate that. So um, anyways, you know, that's, that's actually almost diagnostic as well as therapeutic as, you know, in, in the treatment of this. So, you know, once you've made the diagnosis treatment is usually uh, um, uh, anywhere from 15 to 25 milligrams of prednisone, according to the guidelines. Almost everybody I know uses 20 milligrams of prednisone to start off with, and they usually will keep them on that for, for about four weeks then they'll slowly taper. And this is one of the key pieces of PMR is that this is one of the few disease states left, I think, where long, long-term steroids are used. And, and, and in most cases, patients will be on some dose of steroids for a year to two years after uh, the diagnosis. Now, again, if they do well, uh, the doses are get relatively low. So, I mean, you know, during the, the last period, they may be only on, you know, one to five milligrams of prednisone. So the doses are still relatively low, but they're still on steroids. And again, these patients are going to be at risk for all the, all the issues associated 
associated with long-term steroids. So I think that's one of the key pieces. Plus, like many inflammatory diseases, uh, a certain percentage of patients are going to flare once you drop below a certain uh, a, a dose of prednisone. And in fact, uh, um, many patients, not many patients, but about 20% of patients will relapse once their uh, prednisone dose stops below 10 milligrams. And you have to go back up to 10 milligrams and keep them on it for some period of time and then try another prolonged uh, uh, taper down. So, you know, again, you know, this is a disease state where long-term steroids is actually the norm, uh, not the exception. And even with that, uh, you're going to see a, a, a significant minority of patients will have flares if you drop below a certain dose. So if that's the case, we're probably going to need, you know, some sort of steroid sparing regimen, right? And so to date, the, the, the uh, drug that has the most evidence to show that in PMR is methotrexate, which isn't surprising. Methotrexate seems to work as a steroid sparing uh, a, a strategy in a wide variety of, of inflammatory diseases and, and rheumatoid arthritis and things along those lines. So they say, you know, if you've had multiple flares or you're having significant steroid side effects to consider uh, adding on low dose methotrexate, uh, actually relatively low doses in, in the 7.5 to 10 milligrams per week, which is a little bit lower than you'll see for RA and stuff like that. There is also a small study that looked at intramuscular methylprednisolone every three weeks and found that the overall exposure to steroids was less with it with an equal response. I don't know a lot of people who are going to be up to getting an IM injection every three weeks. And I don't know a lot of, of, of physicians offices are going to be at, you know, have the ability to do that really easily. So while that's an interesting uh, uh, side note, I have not seen it done clinically. So bottom line is that, is that, you know, these are patients who are going to get started on relatively high doses of steroids and uh, will be on them for about a year or two. And then a significant minority will have flares. Um, and, uh, you know, from the pharmacist in me, always thinking about, you know, if I've got somebody on long-term uh, uh, high-dose steroids, please do not forget PJP prophylaxis. I see that missed all the time in these patients. And uh, consider, I would say, in all of these patients, once you've made the diagnosis of PMR, at a minimum, uh, they need uh, calcium and vitamin D. Some uh, a rheumatologist suggests that, you know, DEXA scan should be done immediately in these patients and that you may consider if they're going to be on long-term steroids above 10 milligrams to consider putting them on a bisphosphonate as well. I've, I've seen that less. I've seen just more calcium and, and, and vitamin D, but I think you know, consideration of osteoporosis and worsening of, of bone loss, is something you really, really need to consider in these patients and kind of gets, you know, slipped by, I think when, when, when things go along here. So, so again, steroids, the, the, the treatment of choice, <clears throat> And then methotrexate, if you need a steroid sparing regimen, or if, if steroid side effects are getting uh, too bad, but what if that doesn't work or, or what if methotrexate can't be used, that patient has increased LFTs or something like that. The, the next pathway uh, that's been looked at uh, uh, is interleukin-6 and, and they've tried other types of pathways, uh, both infliximab and a couple of other drugs have actually failed in PMR. They don't seem to have any effect, but interleukin-6 seems to have a, 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 a significant role in both PMR and giant cell arteritis. Um, it seems to be one of the primary uh, um, uh, chemical cytokines that's responsible for inflammation of arteries. And so if in patients fact who have giant cell arteritis, tocalizumab, which is an IL-6 blocker, is actually routinely recommended for the treatment of those patients. Um, but we really don't have a lot of data in uh, uh, PMR patients, and that's where uh, cerilumab kind of comes in. So cerilumab is another uh, uh, interleukin-6 blocker, and uh, 
uh, may have activity in PMR. And the paper that was published a couple of weeks ago in New England Journal of Medicine was the SAFR study, uh, which again was, was designed to look at efficacy and safety of cerilumab in patients with PMR who had had a disease flare while on tapering uh, steroid therapy. Uh, the study was a phase three multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study. They Patients all had to meet the 2012 uh, classification criteria for PMR. It was done in 17 countries, which makes sense because while PMR is not rare, it's really not the most common disease state, and you're absolutely going to need to have a whole bunch of patients in a whole bunch of areas to, to, to generate enough patients to have the power to show a difference if one exists. Uh, the inclusion criteria, all of these patients had to have at least one disease flare uh, during a, a steroid taper, um, and that disease sort of had to occur at a dose of 7.5 milligrams a day um, or less. So um, they, they had to have basically a flare once you dropped to 7.5 milligrams a day or below. And that, that had to happen within 12 weeks uh, before screening of, of entry into the study. And they had to be on at least eight weeks of at least 10 milligrams of prednisone or equivalent. All these patients needed to have an ESR of at least 30 and an elevated CRP of at least 10 within 12 weeks before screening. They did exclude patients that you might expect, patients who had giant cell arteritis, patients who had RA or other inflammatory uh, uh, conditions as well, because of course, it would stand a reason that this drug would probably work on them too. The treatment, uh, the patients were randomly assigned in a one-to-one -one ratio to receive a whole year of either twice monthly subcutaneous uh, cerilumab at 200 milligrams uh, for every dose, plus a 14 week prednisone taper. And that's, that's, that's key to understanding the study. So they either received cerilumab every other week, basically twice, twice a month, and then had a 14 day prednisone taper. Or if you were in the other arm, you had a placebo plus a 52 week prednisone taper. So by definition, patients in the cerilumab group were going to be exposed to less steroids because they were only on a 14 week taper. After, after the one year period was, was completed, there was a six week follow-up period to look at safety. The dose could be reduced of cerilumab if they had any symptoms uh, that they suspected might be associated with that. We'll talk about that when we talk about safety. And if patients did have another flare, they were allowed uh, to be uh, to receive basically open label steroids if they had a, a flare uh, while they while they were in the study. So I think a fairly well-designed study to do that. And I think since they thought that cerilumab was definitely going to be a steroid sparing regimen, the whole 14 versus 52 week thing kind of makes sense. At least it kind of does to me anyway. So the primary outcome at one year was sustained remission, which was defined as complete resolution of signs and symptoms of PMR. So again, no, no muscle weakness, no muscle pain. They had to have a normal CRP at week 12. And um, at, they also had to have basically uh, uh, no, no symptoms and a normal CMR at, at week 52 as well. Uh, they did define a disease flare basically as recurrent of symptoms plus an elevation of inflammatory markers resulting in, in the need to either add on steroids or increase steroid dose. They looked at a number of secondary outcomes. Uh, they looked at cumulative glucocorticoid dose, which again, almost certainly was going to favor cerulumab because of, of the tapering schedule that they had. Uh, there's a, a screen. Screen, uh, screens a scale called the glucocorticoid toxicity index. I'm not going to lie. I've never heard of it before. So I had to do some research on it, but the scores on this uh, uh, toxicity index range from zero to 538 with, with higher scores indicating more toxic effects. Um, and they, you know, it gets divvied up into the things you would expect, infection, insomnia, weight gain, um, uh, increasing blood sugars, all the things you'd expect get added onto that toxicity score. 
statistics. Initially, they thought that they would be able to target 280 patients as, 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 as uh, the number they needed to show a difference. Um, but, and I think this is going to be an issue we're going to see for years to come in studies, that the study was halted uh, in July 2020 because of the pandemic. And so uh, they actually just basically stopped the study at that point. And, and again, I think we're going to see more and more of this in the next five to six years where studies were ongoing and they just basically came to a screeching halt. And for a variety of reasons, just never were restarted. And so that's something to kind of keep in mind. So because of that, they had to, they had to alter st the statistics. Uh, for example, they changed uh, the alpha from 0.01 to 0.05. Now, why they had the alpha 0.01 to begin with, I'm not really sure. But with the uh, alpha 0.05, their new power estimates suggested that they needed about 120 patients uh, to show a, a, a difference in 25% uh, uh, percentage points between the two arms as, as far as, as remission. And, and, and so that's, that's what they basically looked at. The rest of the statistics certainly made sense. Uh, they were, there was nothing strange or unusual about them. So that, that all looked pretty good. Um, and so uh, in the end, uh, from October 2018 through July 2020, they had 118 patients under, undergoing randomization. So just a, a little bit shy of what they were shooting for in their revised count. Uh, they did have one patient in the Ceruliumab group that did not receive the assigned drug. And so in the end, um, uh, uh, because of dropouts and things, a total of only 78 patients completed the treatment, 42 in the Ceruliumab group and 36 in the placebo group. And if you're saying to yourself, well, gosh, I mean, they were looking at 120 patients and now we're down to 80, um, you know, are we going to base treatment of a disease state based on 80 patients? You're right. That is something that we're going to have to take a look at when we look at, at, at maybe deploying this drug for, for patients with PMR. What did they find? What were the results? And how can we take that uh, to taking a look at these patients? We will talk about that after a word from our sponsor, CE Impact. Are you a pharmacist by design? Since we hold a vital position on the healthcare team, it is our responsibility to advance our knowledge and skills so we can provide the best possible care to our patients. Being a pharmacist by design means striving to be the best version of ourselves, not just as professionals, but as individuals dedicated to improving patient outcomes. Learn more about pharmacist by design at ceimpact.com. Join us and begin your journey to being the best version of your pharmacist self. So we are back talking about the SAPR study, uh, looking at ceruliumab in uh, PMR patients who had had flares, looking at the baseline characteristics of, again, the 78 patients who completed the study. Uh, average age was 70. 75% uh, of patients were female, which, again, is exactly what you'd expect. Vast majority of patients were, were white. Um, uh, they had had at least two disease flares. So, again, I think these were not the usual PMR patients who tend to do okay. These were patients who definitely had flares. Um, uh, only a small percentage of patients were on anything but prednisone um, and their uh, medium C-reactive protein range was, was in, in place as well as the distribution of symptoms, whereas again, the, the mass, vast majority of patients had shoulder pain and weakness as well as morning stiffness of greater than 45 uh, uh, minutes. The median uh, steroid dose in both arms was 10 milligrams. So again, these patients were on, you know, a, again, a decent uh, corticosteroid dose and uh, they had uh, similar uh, scores on the glucocorticoid toxicity indexes as I mentioned before, that goes from zero to 538. And they were at about at a hundred from, from both of them. So 
So as far as results at week 52, remission occurred in 28% of patients in the cerilumab group and only 10% of patients in the placebo group. So that did reach statistical significance. Uh, when they excluded CRP and ESR values, so really only looked at, 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 at clinical resolution of symptoms, the number was actually higher with a sustained remission rate of 32% in the cerilumab group versus only 14% of the placebo group at, at week 52. So I mean, when you add all that together, um, um, and, and you add on patients who did not receive any rescue therapy or extra steroids, that number at one year was 45% in the Ceruleumab group and 14% in the placebo group. Um, even though there was a more rapid prednisone taper, as we mentioned in, in the Ceruleumab group, uh, there was, uh, there was uh, a far higher number of patients who did not need rescue therapy. And of course, the, the exposure to steroids was, was much less. So when you add all that together, patients who had clinical resolution of symptoms, patients who had normal ESRs and CRPs and patients who did not require a, a steroid rescue for a flare, number needed to treat was only four. So that, that's fairly impressive. So only four patients uh, you would need to treat with Ceruleumab to basically uh, uh, get one complete remission without the need for, for steroid rescue. So I, again, I think that's, that, that, that's fairly impressive numbers. Uh, at 12 weeks, the numbers were, were as, as similar to 52 weeks. So that's probably not, not, not worth going. Uh, but uh, again, the, the median uh, steroid dose, as you might expect, uh, was, was, was far higher, more than three times higher um, in, the, in, the, in the, the placebo group compared to the Ceruleumab group. Then unfortunately we get into safety. And, and again, with these small numbers, any sort of safety signal is gonna be, be somewhat troubling. Now, good news is that uh, any adverse effects that lead to discontinuation of treatment uh, was similar between the two arms, but unfortunately, and, and this is this is known as, as a big side effect of Ceruleumab was neutropenia, and that occurred in 15% or nine patients out of the 59 patients in the Ceruleumab group compared to none in placebo. So uh, everything else, you know, was was you know like diarrhea was much more common in Ceruleumab group. Everything else was was fairly uh, similar between the two, but neutropenia, even in this very very small sample size, actually was 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 pretty high. So well, I think the bottom line with this is that anyone who's considering uh, using a Ceruleumab for PMR, you're really going to have to have a schedule for watching uh, their their white blood cell count. I you know I would suggest you know at least monthly in these patients, um, you know, and so you know uh, when they come back for their you know, uh, every other week injection. Um, I think, I think checking white blood cells is going to be critical. Now, the other two side effects that you do want to watch out for, for Ceruleumab, which is true for all the IL-6 drugs is thrombocytopenia, as well as LFT abnormalities. They did not see that in the study, but again, keep in mind that, that, uh, this was a very small sample size. So, um, if we end up with more patients, that's something you're going to see. And that's why, you know, this, this signal for, for neutropenia is so concerning in my opinion. So the, the authors of the study, you know, actually, you know, detail that they felt like this was a pretty well done study. They, they note that, that, you know, they lost a lot of power with the, with the, 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 the stopping of the study because of the pandemic, but again, loss of power didn't end up causing a decrease in, in, in the, in the out, outcome, right? I mean, they still found a very clinically and statistically significant outcome. So, I mean, 
bad, that's a potential strike, but I'd say it's a potential strike far more from a safety perspective, because I mean, again, the more patients you can have in a study, if you find signals for adverse drug reactions, that's more likely to be found. So they conclude by suggesting that um, uh, cerulimab seems to be effective in patients who've had multiple flares of PMR and are on a, a significant dose of steroids. It seems to allow patients to get off steroids faster um, and, and, and maintain remission at one year. So how do we put this in the context? The editorialist of, 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 of this issue, New England Journal basically felt like, and I agree with this, felt like, you know, the, the, uh, the study suggests that it seems to be as, or even probably more effective in methotrexate um, for the steroid sparing effects. Um, and, and unfortunately we don't have a lot of really high quality studies with methotrexate, but the, uh, the remission rates are, you know, about as good, perhaps somewhat better, uh, for ceruleumab compared to methotrexate. So you've got a therapy that, that, um, um, seems to be as, or more effective and seems to be better at steroid sparing effects, uh, compared to methotrexate. But, and there's a poise, this big, but, um, you know, you, you still have to watch out for neutropenia. Now it isn't like methotrexate is completely free, free of side effects as well all aware, and you're still going to need laboratory monitoring people on methotrexate. But again, you're going to have to be, I think, very cautious about, about the side effects of ceruleumab. Um, and of course, it ain't cheap. One of the advantages of methotrexate is that it's dirt cheap, and, and ceruleumab is not going to be dirt cheap as well as it being uh, uh, parenterally. You have to give it subcutaneously, as of course, you know, methotrexate, you can usually get away with, with oral therapy. So I don't think methotrexate is going to go away. I think that there are patients who <clears throat> won't be able to afford ceruleumab or don't or don't want to have injections done, the methotrexate is still going to be used uh, for. But I really think this positions ceruleumab probably ahead of methotrexate in patients who can afford it uh, for PMR patients who have multiple uh, flares. So for primary care physicians, I'd say you know the the the, the big the big message of this of this uh, study is that you know um, the majority of patients with PMR, as you probably had some experience, seem to do fine with just you know a, a long steroid uh, taper. You could argue that that if you can get them off of, of steroids quicker, that's probably a good thing. But I think that that, that alone may not be a reason. And, and I'm sure insurance companies aren't going to think it's a reason to, to want to put people on Ceruleumab. So I think this is really going to come down to patients who have flares that you can't seem to get them to, to lower doses of steroids. And what I would say is that, you know, more than one flare, I, I'd say that that it's, it's at that time, probably time to get rheumatology involved. And um, uh, because I don't think there's going to be a lot of, of primary care physicians, at least in the United States, who are going to be comfortable using this medication. So I think at that point, referring them to room and, and counseling them that, you know, yes, we actually have a fairly effective therapy and um, uh, it, it, it has some issues associated with it. But uh, at, at the end of the day, at, at one year, you're going to have a significant increase in patients who are not going to have symptoms, who are able to completely taper off their steroids. So that's it for this week of uh, Game Changers. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Done here. Be sure to check out our education at ceimpact.com. You'll find it to be your one-stop shop for all the CE resources you need. Become a Pharmacist by Design member today to access it all for free, including CE for this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on Game Changers Clinical Conversations.